Yeah, let's start here. When people think about the New Testament, and I mean believers or unbelievers, I mean Christians or non-Christians, when when people think about the New Testament, I think they tend to think about some of the more spectacular miracles for obvious reasons. So they're going to think about the Lord Jesus walking on the water. Is that an amazing miracle? Or uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And when we say feeding of the 5,000, that means the feeding of the 5,000 men because you would have wives and children. So you probably had 12,000 fed that day from one little boy's lunch, right? Or you think about uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Or if you're thinking about apostles, you might be thinking about uh, um, Peter and John healing the, the lame man at the temple in Acts 3. Or uh, you might be thinking about uh, Paul resuscitating supernaturally a guy named Eutychus. Remember that? Why did, why, why did Eutychus need to be resuscitated? Fell asleep at church, yeah, and fell out of the building. He's sitting in the windowsill, right. So you think about those kind of miracles. Uh, and I think believers and unbelievers tend to think about those kind of unique, kind of amazing miracles. But I think it's unfortunate that Christians, at least, don't tend to think beyond that about the miracle of the New Testament itself. I mean, the fact you've got this book called Acts, which was written in about 62 A.D., under inspiration, preserved in multiple thousands of Greek manuscripts, copied into English, and you got a good translation in your lap or on your phone, is an amazing thing. And I'm going to say today that the apostles did some amazing foundational miracles to start the church off, but to me the ultimate apostolic miracle, the ultimate miracle performed by the apostles, was the production of your New Testament. And I think we're going to focus on that, and I think we'll see um, some principles from that that can help us think about our Christian lives better. But let's uh, focus in on our teachability. Let's let the Holy Spirit who inspired this text and then has preserved it uh, soften my heart and your heart to what uh, God's wanting to teach us from his truth today. And uh, Lloyd Davis, I wonder if you'd pray for our teachability, our troops, peace officers, and firefighters, just briefly, okay? Yeah, we're going to talk about apostolic miracles today. And with that in mind, uh, let me uh, focus for a minute here about uh, some biblical miracles we might not notice. I think you'll understand what I mean after the first one. Uh, we all notice that Daniel surviving in the lion's den. He gets on the wrong side of uh, the king, and they, they throw this old guy, Daniel's 80 years old plus, they throw him in the lion's den, and the, the lions weren't hungry that day. They, they weren't interested in eating this probably bony uh, old Jewish guy. So we all noticed that Daniel surviving in the lion's den was a miracle, but we might not notice it was a bigger miracle that when Daniel, who was at least 80 years old, was th- first thrown down into the lion's den, he didn't break his hip. So that was a miracle too. God does miracles we don't always notice at this point. Um, we all notice that the Lord feeding 5,000 plus, 5,000 men and their families from one little boy's happy meal of five loaves and two fishes was a miracle. But we might not notice it was also a miracle. The little boy's mom, okay, Ryan, didn't pack his lunch bag with the kid's first choice of that day 
which was five fruit roll-ups and two donuts. That's what the kid wanted. But that wouldn't work out as well. Right, Ryan? We all notice there are many amazing answers to prayer in the book of Ruth. Every single prayer gets answered in the book of Ruth. Uh, but we might not notice it was a miracle that God used Boaz in many different ways throughout the book, despite the fact that before he met his wife, he was totally ruthless. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, uh, we all notice it was a miracle when Paul and Silas in Acts 16 were freed from the prison cell in Philippi by an earthquake. But we might not notice it was a much greater miracle that later that night the jailer and his whole family were saved by faith in Christ. I don't think there are any apostles walking around since 96 AD when John died. There are no apostolic sign gifts given to anybody today. you got something a lot better to confirm the apostolic witness. you got a New Testament and every single time somebody hears and believes in Jesus Christ, it's an extension of the ministry of the apostles, focusing on the ministry of Jesus Christ. And when people like me say, don't call your uh, televangelist faith healer when you get a bad physical diagnosis, I'm not saying I don't believe in miracles. I think they happen all the time. We don't notice a lot of them. But one of the greatest miracles is a sinner by the grace of God, trusting in Jesus Christ alone and receiving at least 33 different things. Dr. Chafer, who started Dallas Seminary in his systematic theology, listed 33 things that happened to you that you may not have noticed. When I got saved, all I knew was I wasn't going to go to hell now, and that was enough. But you're regenerated, justified, positionally sanctified, adopted, and uh, 28 other things as well. So we're going to emphasize that uh, today. We uh, are in the midst of Paul's vexing voyage to Rome. Last week we looked at before the shipwreck and after the shipwreck. Today we're going to see Paul, uh, God's miracle man, on an island just south of Italy. After the shipwreck, they end up on this island called Malta. And then, Lord willing, Russell, next week we're going to see Rome, sweet Rome. We're going to be in the last section of the book uh, of Acts and finish the book. Uh, and here's the thing. The apostles did perform many amazing miracles, and yet among the greatest miracles is the salvation of sinners who believe then and now. So let's not uh, belittle that or fail to appreciate that. Uh, here we are at the end of the book of Acts. We're in the last chapter now, Tommy, and uh, it's hard to keep 28 chapters in your head for some context, but you know this little uh, memory device, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, can help you to do that. We'll focus on the bride part today, but let's uh, let's review these. Uh, Jesus is alive. Jesus, J. Jesus ascends to heaven, Lori, in the first chapter of Acts. That's how the book starts. Then we have the establishment of the New Testament church. We're in the church age. The church age is from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 all the way until the rapture of the church. So we're some, somewhere between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ the inter-advent period, which is really an amazing place to be when you think about it. Uh, chapter 3, salvation of the lame beggar that uh, John and Peter healed outside the temple, uh, unleashing a persecution against the church, no good deed goes unpunished, then sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. So that's Jesus is alive, Jesus, uh, the Jesus portion of that. Then what's I? 
impact of deacons. Why, why do we need deacons in Acts 6? Because the church was trying to help some of the widows in the church that couldn't feed themselves, didn't have the funds to feed themselves. But there was some breakdown in the, actually the logistics of Spokes for Hope. You know, that was the original Spokes for Hope. Let's get food out to the uh, widows in the church. And so the apostles said, yeah, that needs to happen. But we've got certain things we're going to do. We're going to delegate that to deacons to take care of that. Um, and no good deed goes unpunished. So as the uh, popularity visibly of the church increases in Jerusalem because they're actually feeding people and helping people physically, not just spiritually, um, persecution focuses on one guy, Stephen. One of the first deacons who helped feed the widows was stoned uh, in Jerusalem by a bunch of self-righteous religious bigots. Now, I don't consider myself a self-righteous religious bigot, but I can tell you self-righteous religious bigots can do bad things. So when that label's applied to us, I kind of take exception to that. Uh, but yeah, uh, man-made religion cranks out all kinds of horrible things, like the uh, stoning of a, a guy by the name of Stephen. Now, there was a man holding the cloaks of some of the young guys who were throwing the rocks who was on fast track to becoming a VIP in the religious system. Remember what his name was? That'd be Saul. You know him as Paul. So we see Saul first introduced there in chapter 7. Jesus is alive, abroad with Philip. We see the gospel getting out of Jerusalem as Philip shares in Samaria and on the road to Gaza. L, life comes to Saul on his way to persecute Christians in Jerusalem. He has a dramatic conversion. Then in chapter 10, we see salvation, impartation of salvation to a Roman centurion in his household who had been seeking God but didn't know about Christ. Peter, after being reluctant to go to the house of a Gentile. You know why? Because under the picky rules that had been added to the Old Testament law, you couldn't go inside the casa of a Gentile as a Jew without getting spiritual cooties. Now, God doesn't believe in the spiritual cootie theory of spirituality, but the folks in the setting in Jerusalem did. So Paul, Peter had to overcome that prejudice, and he shares the gospel of Cornelius, and the whole family hears and trusts in Christ. Uh, in the aftermath of that, verification. Some of the religious Christians in Jerusalem couldn't believe that the uh, Gentiles had believed and been saved, and Paul walks them through that. And then we have alive, A-L-I-V-E, execution of James. Who was James? Brother of John, the first apostle to be executed, the first apostolic martyr was James. Stephen's the first martyr, but he wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon, right? So we have the execution of James, but the miraculous escape of Peter. After James was arrested and killed by King Agrippa I, we recently saw his son, Agrippa II, interact, remember, with Festus and Paul in Caesarea. But we've got Agrippa I arresting James, making points with the religious authorities, killing James, and then he arrests Peter. What's he going to do with Peter? Blanche, what do you think? He's going to kill him too, isn't he? But what happens? An angel comes in the middle of the night. Peter's really stressed out. He's asleep in his prison cell, so he's not too stressed out. That's a miracle. Uh, and uh, Peter actually interrupts the prayer meeting. They had an all-night prayer meeting, Daryl, so that Peter might be miraculously saved, and when he was, they wouldn't let him in the prayer meeting. They were all afraid that it was the bad guys wanting to get in. Remember that? But as I've often said, I wonder what James's mother thought in the aftermath of the miracle to save Peter. I mean, she's got to think at first, Lord, 
what's my kid? Chop liver? I mean, we had a prayer meeting for my kid too. And they arrested him. We prayed all night and he got killed. Then they arrest Peter. We prayed all night and he gets released. God had a different purpose for Peter than he had for James. And apparently he's got a different purpose for me than he has for Billy Graham. Because, you know, I keep waiting for Billy Graham Ministries to tell me I'm the new Billy Graham, but it didn't happen. Maybe I can be the next Joel Olstein. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Jesus is alive as first missionary journey. Uh, Antioch of Syria sends out Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, who'd later re- write the book of Mark. Uh, synagogues strike back in places like Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. What happens in chapter 15? Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Yeah, watch this. In the aftermath of the first missionary journey, where Peter and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, the two that lasted the whole thing, got all these Gentile places and preached the gospel and they believe and get saved, there's still blowback from the city of Jerusalem from some of the legalistic Christians saying, you can't just tell Gentiles to believe and be saved. They can't just believe in Jesus and be saved. I mean, out of your mind? I mean, uh, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, right? Yeah, check. They're not Jews, right? Check. Don't they have to become Jews first and submit to certain religious rituals and then they pre-qualify, become Jewish proselytes and then they can believe in Jewish Messiah and be saved? No, that's not what, that's not the way it works. God saves anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ. No one is so bad they can't have it. No one's so good they don't need it. So heresy corrected. Uh, and in the aftermath of the heresy being corrected, as Paul and Barnabas get ready to go on the second missionary journey, what happens? They have an honest disagreement. Real good Christians that love the Lord can differ on policy and personnel. Remember what the argument was about? Remember John Mark, who started the first missionary journey with Peter and Barnabas? He kind of flaked out halfway through, and he went back to Jerusalem where his mother lived, and he just quit in the middle of the missionary journey. Well, a year later, they're going to start the second missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas said, let's go revisit the churches we started and go start some more. And Barnabas says, great. When should I tell John Mark we're going to leave? And Paul says, uh-uh, he's not going. Don't you remember what he did? He blew it the first time. I can't trust him. I love him, but I can't trust him. He hasn't had enough time to reestablish his credibility. And Barnabas says, I don't see that. I think he's good to go. I know him. In fact, we're cousins. <laughs> we know that from Colossians. Uh, and I think he's good to go. And what are those two good men, Paul and Barnabas? I'm pretty sure they're both Christians. It'd be easy to say, well, one of them's not a Christian. That's why they did something bad. Christians do all kinds of bad stuff. You become a pastor, you'll find out. Okay? Um, and that's just watching the stuff I do and get away with. But uh, that's different now. Um yeah, these two wonderful guys, um, and I'm, we're not sure about this, but I'm pretty sure in my mind that, that Barnabas was the human author of a book we called Hebrews. We call Hebrews. But, uh, that may not be correct. But these two wonderful guys who love each other, love the Lord, have an honest disagreement. And so Paul takes Silas and he says, I'm gonna go back and re- revisit the churches we just started earlier and, and go beyond that. And what does Barnabas do? Does he get mad and quit the church and quit the ministry? And No. He says, well, I'm going to go to Cyprus and then south to North Africa, and I'm going to take Mark with me. Now, do we know that Paul and Barnabas later interacted? Yeah, from other biblical passages, they later interacted as friends. Do we know that Paul and Mark, the guy Paul didn't think was ready for the next trip, do we know that they interacted possibly later? Yeah. 
Uh, Paul mentions Mark several different times in positive ways, and we know that Mark ends up becoming kind of the uh, mentee of another apostle. It's not Barnabas and it's not uh, Paul. Who does Mark eventually become really tight with? Peter, yeah. And so he writes the gospel of Mark primarily through interviewing Peter and getting all the raw material, and then he writes his gospel. So that's heresy corrected. That's Acts 15, really important, and then the aftermath of that. Second missionary journey, Paul and Silas, and they pick up Timothy along the way, uh, evangelize Europe, and they go into cities like uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, apathy in Athens. What happens when Paul shares the gospel with all the learned Ph.D. philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens? It's a real place, real people. What happened? They're not buying it. They don't believe in life after death. We live in a culture that increasingly doesn't believe in life after death either. So should we just kind of water that down so that people will like us more or not think we're crazy because we believe in a resurrected Savior? No. We lovingly share the truth. And you know what? Uh, the death rate is 100%. As long as the death rate, despite all the advances in medical science, 100%, you're going to need a resurrected Savior. That's God's plan. That's God's solution. That's our message. We can't change it. We won't change it. But apathy in Athens when they hear about the resurrection. And then Paul goes 50 miles away to Corinth, which was considered to be Las Vegas on steroids. I mean, it was like the worst place in the world. Uh, and yet he starts a little church there that actually becomes uh, several hundred pretty quickly. And you wouldn't believe what some of these people are dealing with. Uh, the pastor probably does. But, uh, yeah, disciples in Corinth, question mark, second missionary journey. Uh, at the end of the second missionary journey, Paul comes back to the city of Antioch and starts a third missionary journey. And we see he goes to the third largest city of the ancient world, Ephesus, spends three years. The third missionary journey is basically Paul spending three years in Ephesus and revisiting some of the churches he'd established prior to that. Farewell to the Ephesian elders. Now we're back in Jerusalem, and this is really important for our culture, for our context here. What happens at the end of the third missionary journey when Paul is trying to mind his own business, and uh, do his thing in Jerusalem in the temple precincts. What happens, Kay? Riot breaks out because the rumor on the street, even among some of the Christians, is that he's denigrating the Old Testament law and the Jewish traditions. So Hebrews riot in Jerusalem as the Roman soldiers protect him and take him into custody, and they're walking him up the steps to the Antonia Fortress that abuts, abutted the temple region at that point. Uh, Paul asks, hey, can I speak to this crowd? Like I said, the last couple of weeks, what anybody else would see as a crowd of murderers, Paul sees as an audience for the gospel, right? All these self-righteous religious bigots that wanted to kill him need to hear about the crucified, risen Savior who's paid our sin debt for us. So we have instruction in the temple area. The next day, the Romans take Paul to the Jewish Supreme Court, tries to adjudicate who caused the riot, and the Sanhedrin sizzles. What do I mean by that? Same old thing. You know, the Sadducees uh, that controlled the Sanhedrin were liberal theologically. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. The Pharisees did. They certainly didn't like the resurrection of Christ. But when Paul talks about resurrection, they divide over that. And they're trying to basically rip Paul apart, these wonderful 70 religious old guys. And again, the Romans have to get in the middle and save Paul's life. Now... Jesus is alive as head of his bride, B-R-I-D-E, bondage in Caesarea. Remember the first Roman governor, 
deals with the case, decides not to decide. Paul sits in Caesarea for two years. You know, our disappointments are God's appointments. Why in the world would God let him sit there for two years doing nothing? He wasn't just doing nothing. You're always doing something. And, uh, you know, God's timing is always perfect. So you have to rest in that when you're in one of those holding patterns that we sometimes find ourselves. R, the new Roman governor, Festus, reviews the case. And when he says, hey, Paul, let me just send you back to Jerusalem. Paul says, no, I can't get a fair trial there. I appeal to Caesar. If this can't be decided as a Roman citizen, I want to go to Rome. And so once he says that, that's where he's headed. Inquest before King Agrippa II. Uh, Festus is trying to get some more information from this Jewish-based king so he can fill out the paperwork on Paul. Then last week, what did we see? Disaster at sea. Remember the first two phases of Paul's voyage to Rome before and after, or before the shipwreck and during the shipwreck itself. And what did we see there? What was the principle last week? Paul's right in the center of God's will. He's going to Rome just like God said it would happen, but he's also in the middle of a storm. So the idea that if you're in the middle of a storm, you can't be in God's will um, isn't necessarily true, right? So what are we going to do when God doesn't get us out of storms, doesn't get us out of the uh, medical predicament or predicament? I can't say predicament. I put an R in there. Predicament? Can't get us out of our medical problem, doesn't get us out of our medical problem, or our financial problem, or our job problem, or our relationship problem. But when he doesn't get us out of a storm, he will be with us in the storm and he'll get us through it, right? So boom, what's the last letter there? Russell, we finally got to the last chapter here. Jesus is alive as head of his bride, entry into Rome. We're not going to get there this week. Lord willing, we'll get there next week. Okay, here's the big picture. You guys know this map by now. We've got uh, the events of the Gospels happen right there in Israel. Paul is first hassled in Jerusalem. He goes to the Roman capital, Caesarea, because of the Roman uh, government taking custody of him and protecting him from being murdered in Jerusalem. And he has wanted to go, and in chapter 23, God confirms to him he is going to go to Rome, not just to adjudicate his case, but to proclaim the gospel there. And by the way, we know, according to the book of Philippians, that at least some of the household of Caesar uh, in and around the Praetorian Guard, the Secret Service, had heard about the gospel because Paul was in Rome. But uh, we're not talking about that now. We're talking about, boom, talking about Malta, okay? Uh, we Last week, we started in Caesarea, and we sailed around here. And remember, uh, Paul said, really need to stay put. And they said, well, we'll get over here because it will be better for the winter. And they try to go over to Phoenix and Crete. And a big storm comes up, which is signified by that, whatever that means. And, uh, yeah, so they end up like 600 or 700 miles here when they hit the side of a, a reef there. Just for the context, hey, I apologize. You know, I just broke all the rules of hermeneutics. I know that. And uh, uh, you, you never do that much review. But when you've got a story that started in chapter 21, and you must understand the context to get how important what we're going to say is now, you got to do that. So I know I broke all the rules, but those rules are made to be broken, people. Okay? Look at chapter 27, verse 39. Let's get the context here. We're sailing uh, to Rome, we think, but we're in this storm, and now we're going to have the shipwreck. When day came, if they've been battling this storm... Uh, uh, they, the sailors, the old salts, could not recognize the land they were seeing just off the port bow there, as it were, because they're coming into Malta from a different angle than usually. But they did observe a bay where they could kind of beach the ship, 
And so they resolved to drive the ship into it if they could, because they're still in a life and death situation. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they're heading toward the beach. But striking a reef just off the beach, where two seas met, two channels met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow of the boat stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern, the back of it, began to be broken up by the force of the waves. So you, but you think, okay, now we're on dry land, a sandbar, and hopefully most of us can swim to the shore. But watch this. Paul's life's still in jeopardy for a moment. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. They've got a bunch of convicted murderers or felons, plus Paul, who's a Roman citizen looking for an appeal, hasn't been uh, convicted of anything, so that none of them, there's several prisoners on board, would swim away and escape. But the centurion, who's in charge of this operation, didn't want that to start because Paul might accidentally get whacked too, wanting to bring safely through and eventually get him to Rome, kept them from whacking the other prisoners and commanded to everyone on board that if you could swim, swim forward to the beach and um, get to land as best you can. The rest should follow, hold on to something that's floating, planks, various things on the ship. And so it happened, class B miracle, that all 276 people, uh, verse 37, were brought safely to land. That's where we pick up today. When they, all these people, had been brought safely through the storm and the shipwreck and got to the land, we found out that the island was called Malta. Uh, and it's still there today. Uh, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain they had set in and the rain had, that had set in, and because of the cold, it's late October, uh, so it's wet, it's cold, it's damp, they're freezing. They kindled a fire for us and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper, a snake, a deadly snake, there are very few things in the world I'm afraid of, but a snake will get me every single time. <laughs> um, increasingly, I'm, I'm afraid of babies for some reason. I'm not sure why, but just like I just have a lot of contact with babies lately. Uh, a viper, not really. I love babies. but uh, They'll mess up your suit, but it's good. Uh, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself to Paul's hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, that's a strange story, but I had a, a colleague at Cameron who last year got attacked by a snake that was attached to his hand. He survived, but uh, it wasn't easy. When the, native, when the natives saw the creature, the snake hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he was brought safely through the sea, justice, and that should be a capital J, because they had a deity called justice. They had a god, lowercase g, called justice. The god justice has not allowed that guy to live. However, he, Paul, shook off the, the creature uh, into the fire, because he's worried about everybody else. He didn't want the snake to bite anybody else, right? And suffered no harm. That's a miracle. Uh, but they were ex- expecting, that is, the natives were watching Paul, that he was going to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they'd waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god. Now let's talk about that, shall we? Number one, we're taking a long way to Rome, aren't we? Okay, uh, we've uh, went, uh, got on two different boats and we've had a shipwreck and all that, but they're going to get there. And again, God's timing 
is what's important. But notice this, little things I noticed. Number one, they hit the beach, they're all alive. The natives, rather than attacking them, are trying to sell them souvenirs. Now today, in the third world, they don't, won't necessarily attack you, but they will try to sell you stuff, you know. So just be aware of that. Always take some dollar bills, because you can get a long way with a couple of dollar bills, you know, in Amman, Jordan. Um, but they're friendly. The natives are friendly. And they're very thoughtful, too. Lori, they built a big fire for them, which was awesome. Um, so that's good. Now watch this. Uh, Blanche, you're like this. You're a VIP. You know, you're, you're special. And you're important. But so is everybody else in the room. So please get over it, okay? Because otherwise, you're going to be very, you know, self-obsessed. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, now we forget, we, I think we, we don't appreciate what apostles were, Scott. I mean, apostles were like five-star generals over the church. They were like the founding fathers. George Washington, you know, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton. The apostles are like that, only better, only bigger. Uh, and Paul's sitting there and they, they need more fuel for the fire. And rather than thinking, well, I'm an apostle, I've already written six New Testament books. Okay? What, he's already written six New Testament books. What books had he written? First Missionary Journey, one book, Galatians. Second Missionary Journey, two books, First and Second Thessalonians. Third Missionary Journey, three books. Wasn't that thoughtful of him, Ken? First Missionary Journey, one. Second Missionary, two. Third Missionary Journey, three. That was very nice of him. Yeah. One plus two plus, and those are Romans, First and Corinthians. He's already written six New Testament books. He's an apostle. He outranks everybody on the island, spiritually. He ought to just sit there and watch somebody else pick up the sticks. You know what I mean? Doesn't think like that. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Right? So that's our job, to be servants. Uh, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, nobody told him to do this. He just did it. He wasn't too good to get dirty, or get his hands dirty, literally. Laid them on fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now that's, that's gotta hurt. Uh, when the natives saw the creature, they're thinking, man, this must be a bad guy. They don't know who he is. They just know that he'd just been saved from the shipwreck and now a snake's bit him and he's dying. He's, he's dead. Now, why do they think he's gonna die? Because the snake, they've seen it happen. They've seen this happen before. Uh, I, Called this a two-step snake. I'm not sure there is such a thing, but uh, in Texas they warn you about two-step snakes. You know what two-step snakes do? Yeah, after they bite you, you take two steps and you drop dead. So, so it's like that. So I don't. He's not literally a two-step snake, but this kind of snake that's going to give you a lot of pain and a lot of problems. And there's no pain and no problems. So you know, he shakes the fi- the snake off into the fire. I'm sure all the animal rights people are going to be unhappy with that. Okay. Actually, we could translate that. He tra- he shook, shook the snake off by the fire. No, it actually says in the fire. So, Ace, what's the uh, dative? It means into, you know, as you see, you'll know. But uh, when they were expecting they was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, you know, they're, and they're actually enjoying this. They're waiting to see it happen, you know, because they don't have television or HBO or anything, so they got nothing to do but watch these things happen. They don't know this guy anyway. Uh, but they waited a long time, nothing happened. Nothing unusual happened. So they changed their minds and began to say he was a god, lowercase g. Listen, people are so fickle. Linda, they're looking forward to watching this guy swell up and die for entertainment purposes. 
And then when it doesn't happen, they're saying, well, he must be a god. I mean, you know, it's like he's worthless or he's like supernatural, one or the other. Um, it's like the opposite would happen in the first missionary journey. Remember what happened in Lystra? They come into town, Paul and Barnabas. Paul does a apostolic sign healing mir- miracle. And they say, hey, these guys must be gods. And they believed in these supernatural beings on Mount Olympus, kind of these superheroes. And they said, it's kind of funny, they said, well, Barnabas, who's the tall, good-looking guy, he must be Zeus. He must be the king of the gods. And Paul, the little scrawny guy with a beard, he must be the helper. He's Hermes. He's the messenger of the gods. Remember that? So they think they're gods. And then the priest of Zeus at the temple there in Lystra comes out with a big thing, and they have to talk him off the ledge, say, no, we're not gods. We're just here to tell you about God. And they preach the gospel, and they convince them that they're worshiping as gods. And then it says, but the Jewish opponents hit town, and they convince the crowd to attack Paul. And what happens to Paul and Lystra? They stone him to death and drag him out of town, and then he just is supernaturally revitalized. Now, the text could mean he was almost dead. It's not specific, but I think they're assuming you realize he was not going to get any better, but he did supernaturally get better. So it's kind of the opposite. First they thought he was a god, then they were willing to kill him. Here they were happy to see him die, and now they think he's a god. So you know, conventional wisdom isn't always right when it comes to science or scripture, and they're wrong on both accounts there. Now, by the way, we won't take the time to go into this, but uh, when you look at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, Scott, there are verses that talk about certain things, certain sign miracles that will accompany those who believe. And when Jesus says that, he's talking to the apostles, and I think he means the apostles will see some of these things happen. Not all the apostles saw all, all of them, but all these things were seen by apostles. And one of the things it says is... Um, if they pick up serpents, the serpent will not harm them. Okay. Now, based on that statement at the end of the Gospel of Mark, which in my opinion was applied to the apostles and was fulfilled, if no place else, was fulfilled here. This is kind of an example of that. Paul's an apostle. He's bitten by a snake accidentally. He wasn't holding up a snake in a worship service or something like that, and he wasn't harmed. But based on that, you realize the the modern charismatic movement started in the early 1900s in Los Angeles, California, which is not necessarily a great place to get great theology all the time, unless you're listening to Chuck Swindoll or something when he was there. But, um, yeah, um, according to some groups uh, of kind of hyper-charismatic folks, especially in places like Appalachia and places like that, uh, they take that statement, they'll pick up serpents and they won't be harmed, to mean that snake handling, handling rattlesnakes and other poisonous snakes is something you do in a church service. Have you seen video of this stuff? And in fact, um, and I'm not making fun of them at all, but, uh, you know, you have all these reality television shows on the cable networks. You know, you got Sister Wives about the guy, the, the fundamentalist Mormon who's got like five wives, and you've got, uh, what else is it, uh, is Pawn Stars considered to be a reality TV show? Once they get to be famous, though, that changes everything, and it becomes very contrived. You know, even Duck Dynasty, it becomes very contrived. But uh, they were—they started one of these things, and I was just curious as a theologian wannabe. You know, I wanted to watch this thing. But like a year ago, they had uh, got permission to go somewhere as in Kentucky or Tennessee, and they were going to 
uh, watch the pastor, his life, and, and they emphasize they were snake handling. And, and, and do you, any of you see this? I, I should have looked up the title, but, you know, Carol looks up stuff on the fly here. I mean, uh, reality TV show about snake handlers that went out of business because the pastor died of a snake bite. I mean, I'm not making it up. I mean, it did happen after the show actually started. I think they were saying, you know, you're not holding that rattler close enough to your face there, Billy. And we were doing TV here, you know, he sticks in his face. You know, but but again, what do skeptics in our culture do with those kind of things, which I think are tragic, and I'm not trying to be funny about it, but it is, it's, you know, you, you, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. What the skeptical world says is, that's what happens if you take the Bible seriously. Those people took the Bible seriously, you know, and that's why he's dead, because there's a verse in the Bible says you're supposed to handle snakes in church services. No, it doesn't say that. It says there are certain things that will accompany the apostles to validate what they're saying before you get the ultimate validation of what they're saying, which is a written New Testament, right? And one of those things is if they handle a snake accidentally, not in the middle of a church service on purpose, you know, begging it to bite them. What did Jesus say to Lucifer when Lucifer said at the beginning of the ministry, hey, you know, you need to be rich and famous. You need everybody to know you're here. Why don't you just jump off the temple pinnacle and you know God's not going to let you die that way, so he'll save you, and that'll generate a lot of positive publicity, and everybody's going to be talking about you. And what Jesus said, yeah, I wish I'd thought of that. Sure. She said, no, you don't put God to the test. You don't tempt God. You don't presume upon that. You don't jump off a building because God had told, you know, whatever your situation is, or you don't hold a snake in front of you. So just be aware of that. But occasionally some of our critics in our skeptical culture will take these bad non-biblically valid examples of people, very sincere, I'm sure those folks are very sincere, uh, but they're just sincerely wrong, right? You're trying to repel off a mountaintop with kite string, you can actually sincerely believe that'll help you, but it's going to pop as soon as you put your weight on it. Okay, long way to Rome, nobody's too important to serve, conventional wisdom isn't always right, boom, Paul's been bitten, but he survives, no problem. That's a miracle. Now let's look at verses 7 through 10. Um, the final foundational apostolic sign miracles that are recorded in the New Testament are recorded here. I'm sure there were more between this point and the death of John, but there are none recorded. You don't, you don't know any more happened. I presume some did, but this is the last, uh, class A kind of miracle you see in the New Testament. And as we say, He's on Malta from uh, the end of October to the 1st of February, end of October 59 to the 1st of February 60, according to uh, Honer's chronology. Look at verse 7 through 9. We're going to see the healing of the chief magistrate's son. Now, verse 7, in the neighborhood of the place uh, where the campfire and the snake bite took place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island. This would have been the highest-ranking Roman official on the island, he wasn't a governor, that's a higher rank than he had, a leading man's kind of generic description, which is accurate, but it's not the technical description. Uh, chief magistrate apparently was the kind of the functional form they would have used for this guy, but he's the leading official of this small island. His name's Publius, and he welcomed us. Notice Luke's there, right? Luke is us, part of the us. Luke, Aristarchus, Paul, and some of the others uh, in, in the band. I don't think he had all 276 over, and entertained us courteously for three days. What did Benjamin Franklin say about uh, fish and company? 
fishing company begin to smell after three days. So, you know, that's all, that's all you're going to get. That's pretty nice though. Uh, and it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed. I got a feeling Publius had a purpose in having Paul, the miracle man, spend three days with him. He's kind of hoping Paul said, hey, what's wrong with, with Pops over there? Well, he's been sick. The, the symptoms here actually line up with a particular illness which is caused by a parasite which is found only in and around Malta today. It's called Malta fever, which is interesting. But he apparently has Malta fever. They wouldn't call it then, that then. But he's lying in bed with recurrent fever and dysentery. This can last weeks or months and can be fatal in worst-case situations, but not necessarily always true. But Paul went over to him, and after he prayed, he laid his hands on him and he healed him. That's a apostolic sign miracle. If uh, I'm living during Paul's era and he's in the area and I've got a sickness the doctors can't help, I would have asked him to please help me. I don't think those people are running around today. I know people will tell you they are. I know Benny Hinn claims to do that. And uh, who else? Uh, uh, Peter Popoff, uh, Kenneth Copeland, people like this claim to be able to heal. I believe God heals. Every single time I prayed for any of you at after or during a surgery, I always pray that the doctors will see what they need to see. They'll do what they can do. But I always say, Lord, if it's your will, please work over and beyond what the doctors do. Uh, the, I think the two extreme extremes to avoid are if the pastor has enough faith, the person won't even need the surgery. Or if the, say, if the uh, patient has enough faith, they won't need the surgery. God's got to heal them because if you have enough faith, he's got to do what you want him to do for you every time. We work for him. He didn't work for us. The other extreme would be, I've heard some clergy just kind of pray, Lord, please let the doctor have a good day. I hope he's alert. I hope he's competent. And I always pray for the doctors. Of course. Are you kidding? These people can make mistakes. <laughs> you see it. But if that's all I'm praying for, I'm not coming to the hospital for you. I'm going to pray God does something over and above that. And Tommy and I have seen stuff like that happen. But it's not on our command. It's not on our call. Sometimes you're sure a miracle is going to happen. It doesn't. Other times you think it's too late. It happens. So um, this is describing what happened. I have no doubt it happened. But the idea that uh, uh, Benny Hinn has this kind of power, I don't buy that. And how, how, how do you know that? Not just by checking out the fact that most of the people you interact with on stage 24 hours later are just as sick as they were before. Some of it's psychological. Some of it's other things. Just check out what they're saying about God, Jesus, salvation, and the big stuff. They're fuzzy or wrong on that. So how in the world are you going to look for them to be your physical savior? I'm not sure, but people do that. It's usually very sincere folks who send the Social Security checks to these people. Uh, and I think God is pleased with their faith, even though it's fuzzy, but the object of the faith is flawed. Uh, after this happened, after we get the word that the chief magistrate's father, who was very sick, was healed by this guy on the island, this miracle man, Paul. The rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. That's obviously what's going to happen. Uh, and, they also, that's, and I'll stop there for a second. So you're seeing a couple things about these miracles. Let me just emphasize this. Number one, I'm convinced apostolic miracles were for a purpose. They were to confirm the message and the teaching of the apostles. What was the message of the apostles? Christ Jesus and him crucified. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. God loves us. 
but he doesn't love our sin. He's got to judge our sin. Our sin gets between us and God. God can't just ignore that. But Christ comes and on the cross, he takes our sin as it were on us. He pays our sin debt for us, rises again through faith in him. We have eternal life. How can they validate that that's the truth? Today, how can you validate that, Brad? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the whole, the New Testament books validate that. They don't have a New Testament. It's in process. So you've got the apostolic witnesses doing these kind of sign miracles to validate their message about Christ and their teaching about grace to believers. These miracles really happened. If you had a time machine, you'd see them. These are not invented or made up after the fact, but they were unique and purpose-driven as I've already mentioned. These kind of miracles were always 100% effective, no failure rate. Okay? Many years ago now, there was a book called Healing, a medical doctor in search of a miracle. And the guy's name was Dr. Noland. I can't think of his first name now. But I saw him interviewed on the Donahue show. That shows you how long ago this was, you know. And he was skeptical. He was kind of a nominal Roman Catholic who wasn't sure what he believed. But he went to um, whoever was the leading faith healer of the day, and he saw things like this as a medical doctor. In fact, he volunteered on site to be a helper. They didn't know he had an agenda. And they found people who were kind of limping in to the big event. And some of the helpers would say, would you like to sit in a wheelchair? We have an extra wheelchair for you. So this person who can walk but with a limp gets in the wheelchair. Okay, They've got hundreds of people who want healings from terminal diseases. They shuttle those people away. They get these people like this with a bad limp that they put in a wheelchair. And after about two hours of motivational speaking and a lot of psychological mumbo-jumbo, they push the guy up who walked in but limped. He's now in a wheelchair. The crowd doesn't know that. They see a guy in a wheelchair. The assumption is this guy can't walk. Benny Hinn, it wasn't Benny Hinn, whoever it was, I should have found out. But Dr. Nolan, miracle. What is it? Uh, uh, Healing. A medical doctor in search of a miracle. Um, Would you like to walk, my friend? Yeah, I'd like to. Do you have faith? Okay. Do you have your checkbook on you? Good. Okay. We'll talk to you later. I command you to stand up and walk. And the guy goes, really? And guess what? You're looking at 5,000 people. You're a civilian. You get a jolt of adrenaline, right? You don't want to make him look bad. Yeah, but I walked in here, Dr. So-and-so. Now, yeah, I can walk. And you know, it's a little stiff. It's getting better. All right, yeah, he's been healed. Great. Hurry up, get the wheelchair. Get him out of here, you know? Uh, that's the kind of stuff he saw. It was shameful. It was unethical. It was sinful. They immediately follow that up with two, not one, but two shots with the offering plate. They rack it in, and you've got mothers with little kids who need healing, and apparently it's not God's will to heal them, and they don't even bring them up there. You know, they wait three hours. They're, they don't, they're not told, well, you've got the kind of stuff we can't fix, but just stand on the wings there. And at the end of it, Dr. Nolan didn't just check out the guy who limped in, who's now limping just like he did before two hours later. But looking at all the people whose hearts are broken because they came and were promised a miracle, and this miracle man is the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. God can heal whatever he wants to heal, but he doesn't use specific physical healers. If he did, 
I would say, let's go to Duncan Regional Hospital. And after we clear that out, let's go to uh, uh, MD Anderson. If you've got the gift of apostolic healing, let's go to MD Anderson. And after we clear it out, we'll go to the entry area. And as they come in, you'll just heal them. Okay? I'd love to have that gift. Wouldn't you? But if somebody had the apostolic gift of healing, why don't they do that? And one of those guys have bad toupees and glasses. I mean, the healers, the Benny Hens of the world have toupees and glasses. What does that tell you? And so the skeptical culture says, Brad McCoy believes that junk? He's a Christian. All the Christians believe that stuff? No, we don't. And I resent the lack of doctrinal correctness and the lack of uh, ethics of these people. And I think most of the folks that love them and follow them are probably very sincere believers, but very naive. Okay, and it's it's tragic, and I take no pleasure in kind of pulling the curtain away from the Wizard of Oz there. But that's the kind of thing you see. Okay, you don't believe God can heal? I absolutely believe God can heal. I've seen God heal, but He doesn't heal through apostolic healers. He heals according to His will and purpose. And ultimately, is the death rate one hundred percent whether you get healed or not? So, what's the ultimate healing? Well, that may be life after death with Jesus, the resurrected Savior. That's always what it is. Verse 10, uh, in the aftermath of three three months on the island, it's interesting, Luke doesn't mention Paul preaching the gospel. You think he just didn't talk about Jesus for three months? Impossible, but it's very possible there's very little response to the gospel. If there had been much of a response, I think he probably would have mentioned it. That's an argument from silence, but we can ask Luke in heaven about that. But as we got to the end of the three months, uh, they honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were set, setting sail to leave the island and go to Rome, they supplied us with all we needed. Let's close like this. Unique apostolic miracles were a foundational part of the New Testament, capital C, church, all born-again believers, regardless of denomination or culture or country or color, are part of that church, right? But here's the thing. Um, Just because Acts describes an event doesn't mean the book is prescribing it. That's where we started, you know, eight months ago. We saw the very first church in Jerusalem. They were all pooling their incomes, all of their property into one pot, and they were all living off of that. That was described under those kind of combat conditions in that city, in that situation. That's what they did once. It described that. Are we ever commanded as Christians we're supposed to find a church, pull all our money and all our stuff into one pot and all live off the pot? Never commanded. Do you see any other church in Acts do that? No. Do you see evidence in the epistles they're not doing that at all? They have no thought of that? Yeah. It's obvious they've got different stratas of economic standing in the the churches that the epistles are written to. So the bottom line is quite often... You'll find things that are described in the book of Acts that have no intention by the author to be prescriptions for us to do. Something to be described but not prescribed. Here, we're describing apostolic miracles. Those things happened, but they were unique, associated with the apostles, who were witnesses of the risen Christ, who haven't been around since 96 AD, and they were no doubt part of the foundation of the New Testament church. Very important part of the New Testament church. But I'm going to argue with you that the ultimate apostolic miracle wasn't uh, healing Publius's father, wasn't even raising Eutychus from 
from the dead. The ultimate apostolic miracle was the production of the ultimate sign gift of who Jesus is. It's your New Testament, okay? The, the New Testament, the, the scripture is God's elephant gun. You know, I'm not a hunter, and I'm not going to go hunt an elephant, but I'm told there are guns that can stop elephants. And if you're charged by an elephant, you've got an elephant gun, you don't describe the elephant gun to the elephant, you just use the elephant gun, okay? You don't have to describe inspiration, canonization, uh, regeneration <laughs> to folks before you share John 3.16 with them, you know? What's your, what's your strategy when the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? My strategy is share clear statements of Scripture like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God. It's not of works the same as your boast. John 3, 16, you know that one. Uh, because that's God's elephant gun. So, yeah, of course the, the apostles did these kind of miracles. It's wonderful. Of course God can do those kind of miracles according to his will and his timing. Now, and I always pray for miracles. I believe in miracles. But the ultimate apostolic miracle uh, was a production of your New Testament that you need to know, love, and live, and share. Ultimately, the cornerstone of the foundation of the New Testament is the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, the Son of God. But closely associated with that, with who he is and what he did, were the words and works of the apostles. And that climaxes in them, or those working under them, giving us the New Testament, right? So um, let me finish this way. Uh, how often do you lay a foundation, unless you live in Oklahoma and you have to have it fixed every 20 years, but uh, basically you lay a foundation once, right? And even if you renovate your house, you don't, unless you live in Oklahoma and have to reinforce your you know, foundation, you build a foundation once, and then you build the house, and you may add on to that or renovate it, but you're not putting a new foundation in every time. you got a foundation once. The apostles were foundational. That was a first-generation function by witnesses of the risen Christ. It's been laid, and since that time, for 2,000 years, the superstructure of the capital C church has been and continues to be built. And so I would say to you, my friends, you don't have to be in Haiti. You don't even have to be in Puebla, Mexico, or the country of Jordan, or China, or Guatemala. Some or all of us have been to those places on mission trips. But if you're alive and a believer, you're on a mission trip. Right now, Julie's most important mission is raising Sawyer and making sure that doesn't keep you from feeding your husband and doing a few other things you got to do, right? Discipling your kids is your most important job, in my opinion. It's the most important mission field you're going to have. But uh, you don't have to go to foreign country for long-term or short-term to be on mission, okay? Now, we have opportunities in Duncan to do stuff like Spokes for Hope, community dinners, all kinds of cool stuff. The me- Link One Mentoring, could we use any more Link One Mentors maybe starting sometime in August, uh, September? There's there's opportunity. We could use some more. It's all kinds of stuff. Those are just some of the stuff that I'm involved in or know about personally. But uh, don't denigrate your local church. You know that that uh, bulletin we pass out every week doesn't just have a prayer list and announcements on it. It's got lists of people that do stuff on the back page there. Gene's uh, out of town today, but you wanna you wanna get you wanna give somebody a thrill when Gene comes back next week. Make sure she's sitting down because you're not used to having volunteers just come up and say, I can do whatever you want me to do as Christian Ed Director. Of course, now it's Super Summer. You get Krista, too. You get Krista and talk about a dream team. You get Krista and Gene in the same room. It's amazing. Say, hey, 
I, I'm, I'm available. I want to help with Super Summer and or the, uh, the, the teaching rotation, right? Uh, or get, get Ray, uh, Ward to sit down. They're out of town this week too. I think this was worse than Memorial Day weekend. For some reason, people must have thought this was Memorial Day weekend. Um, you know, I want to take part in the nursery. Uh, a long time ago I thought, you know what? It's, the ladies are taking care of their kids all day long. They don't want to take care of the, uh, the kids when they come to church. So let's have some men get back there. This was before Target decided, you know, the stuff about the bathrooms and stuff. Let's put men in the nursery rotation. And then somebody said, you know, Mrs. Smith probably doesn't want Mr. Jones, I mean, uh, you know, working with uh, somebody else's wife, you know, I guess I get that wrong, but you know, it wasn't, wasn't a good idea. Now I tell you what, I think Carol and Ken, if I saw that right, they volunteered as a tandem to take a slot on the nursery rotation. I thought that's pretty cool. That's, that's thinking, that's thinking ahead. That's pretty good. So anyway, uh, we read these miracles. We love the miracle stories. I think some of our skeptical friends will say, one reason I don't believe in the Bible is because in the Bible, all these people do miracles. I don't see anybody doing that today. The only thing worse than that are people who say, because Paul did that, Benny Hinn can do that. Uh, I, I will close with this. I keep saying I'm going to close and I want to, can't stop. But I, I think the Internet has helped with this a little bit. But uh, before the Internet, where you could Google anybody and find out who they really are you know, in five seconds, uh, about every year or two, I'd get a letter, it was a form letter to all the pastors in Duncan, and this would say, hi, my name is Jake, I'm an apostle, and I live in Jenks, Oklahoma, I will be in Duncan on Friday night, such and such, and I want all the pastors to meet with me so I can tell them, uh, tell you what God wants you to know, and I thought, huh, really, you're an apostle, you're going to tell me what I need to know? Well, I mean, I'm, I can learn a lot of stuff from anybody. I've learned some stuff from people you wouldn't believe. But, um, you know, nowadays you look that guy up and you find out, you know, he's on parole. Not that there's anything wrong with that per se, you know, but he's got several felonies, uh, you know, and uh, but he did claim that uh, God spoke to him. So obviously he must be an apostle, right? Uh, these people won't lie to you, right? So nowadays we can check that out. The apostles were real. They were unique. Our privilege is to focus on Jesus Christ to cherish the apostolic written scripture, the New Testament, and live it out to the glory of the Savior. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to read the scripture in its context and to love it and live it and believe it, but help us not to take it in directions it's not meant to be taken. The passage in Mark, which some very sincere believers have taken as a mandate to have to handle poisonous snakes and church services and the things that happen, that actually hurt our testimony in the culture because any smart unbeliever says that's what happens when people take the Bible seriously. So help us to be wise enough and have enough discernment to read the Scripture in context and believe it and apply your truth and not um, distortions of it. Uh, I pray for anyone here this morning who's not embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. Open their heart to see and believe their need, uh, his sufficiency, and through faith in him we can have the gift of eternal life. For most of us who've trusted Christ, Father, uh, just purify our thoughts and our actions. Help us to appreciate the ultimate apostolic miracle, which is the production of this wonderful, beautiful, inerrant, inspired New Testament. And forgive us for maybe having more time for HBO or People magazine than for pouring over uh, this sacred writing 
which is integral to the Christian life and has been for 2,000 years. Uh, we thank you for each one who's here. We ask a blessing throughout the building today, especially as some Super Summer gets started, and we pray you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.